Welcome to episode 63, Helping Women Manage Anxiety Through Mindfulness Practices by Elizabeth Cush, Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Cush, and I am a licensed clinical professional counselor in Annapolis, Maryland, where I'm the owner of Progression Counseling, and I'm also the creator and host of the Woman Warriors podcast. I got into the mental health field about 15, 14 or 15 years ago, uh, working at a local hospital as a crisis counselor for the patients who came to the hospital and disclosed they were being abused by their partner, they were sexually assaulted, they may have been children who had been abused or elder adults as well. So I was responding to domestic violence, sexual, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse. I worked there for about not quite 10 years, uh, both as an on-call advocate as well as um, I worked in the office as well, doing on-call advocacy or doing, um, yeah, on-call advocacy as well as some of the office background scheduling as well as um, statistics gathering and grant reporting stuff for the program. I really uh, was very passionate about that job and recognized that it was time to, I was ready to do more, to work with clients one-on-one for a longer period of time. And so while I worked at the hospital, I also went back and got my master's degree in counseling psychology and opened my private practice. So I've been doing therapy one-on-one and in groups for about five years and am not even about for five years. And so I'm excited to have this opportunity to share some of my experiences here. Today, we're going to be talking about women, anxiety, and how mindfulness can help. Some of the things we're going to cover are the disproportionate amount of women who are struggling with anxiety why that might be as compared to men, as well as the neurobiology of anxiety and why mindfulness can be so helpful and how you can bring it into session with you for your clients. So we're going to be exploring the prevalence of anxiety disorders among women um, And some of the reasons that contribute to women being twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Most of the information and research that I found on the prevalence of anxiety disorders for men and women used the DSM-4 categories for anxiety disorders instead of the DSM-5. So I will be referencing those here, although post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorders are no longer listed under anxiety disorders, I'm going to include them here. 
McLean and her colleagues researched gender differences in anxiety disorders. In their 2011 study of U.S. adults, they found that one in three women met the criteria for an anxiety disorder in her lifetime, compared to 22% of men. Anxiety disorders were found to be one and a half to two times more common for women than men, with the greatest differences being generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Here are some of their results. Also, uh, information from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America is included here too. So agoraphobia, 3.1% of women were found to have a lifetime occurrence of agoraphobia as compared to 1.7% of men. Overall, agoraphobia affects 1.8 million people in the U.S. or 0.8% of the population. 7.7% of women as compared to 4.1% of men had generalized anxiety disorder over their lifetime. And overall, generalized anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million adults in the U.S. or 3.1% of the population. 7.1% of women meet the diagnostic criteria for panic disorder compared to 4% of men. Overall, panic disorder affects 6 million Americans in the U.S., or 2.7% of the population. 10.3% of women and 8.7% of men had a lifetime occurrence of social anxiety disorder, Overall, social anxiety disorder affects affects 15 million adults in the U.S., or 6.8% of the population. 16.1% of women and 9% of men had a lifetime occurrence of specific phobias. Overall, specific phobias affect 19 million U.S. adults, or 8.7% of the population. 8.5% of women and 3.4% of men had a lifetime occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder. Overall, post-traumatic stress disorder affects 7.7 million adults in the U.S., or 3.5% of the population. McLean and her colleagues also found that women with a lifetime incidence of an anxiety disorder were also much more likely to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder and bulimia nervosa over their lifetime. And according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, from the time a girl reaches puberty until about the age of 50, she is twice as likely to have an anxiety disorder as a man. Anxiety disorders also occur earlier in women than men. So why are women so much more likely to have an anxiety disorder over their lifetime? So here are some of the factors that contribute to women developing anxiety. One is biology. The fight or flight response is tied to one of the most primitive parts of the brain called the amygdala. The fight or flight response developed back in the day 
when humans had to fight off wild animals or other predators. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the amygdala is more reactive in women than it is in men. Thus, they're more likely to become anxious. There are societal and cultural factors in women developing anxiety as well. Our societal structure impacts women's mental health. And according to the World Health Organization, gender determines the differential power and control men and women have over the socioeconomic determinants of their mental health and lives, their social position, their status, and their treatment in society. Being a woman creates potentially situations where you have less control over your mental health as well as your social, social position, and your status in society. The World Health Organization also reports that the risk factors for mental health disorders that disproportionately impact women include gender-based violence, socioeconomic disadvantage, low income, income equality, low or subordinate social status and rank, and an unremitting responsibility for the care of others. Other factors for women developing an anxiety disorder uh, could be traumatic events. So here are some statistics on violence against women from the World Health Organization and the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Around 35% of women worldwide have experienced physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. 30% of women in relationships reported that their partner physically or sexually abused them. And that does not include verbal or mental abuse, so the number of women who've been abused in relationships is probably higher. And women ages 12 and up are 138% more likely than men, to be a victim of violent crime committed by a partner. And lastly, one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of sexual abuse. And we know that trauma can cause all kinds of mental health issues, including post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as anxiety, depression, and many other Uh, complicated mental health problems. Lastly, another factor that could contribute to mental health in adulthood for women are adverse childhood events. And studies have shown that exposure to child abuse, especially if the abuse lasts a long time, can change how the body manages stress. The Adverse Childhood Effects study is a long-term study conducted by Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Volunteers were scored on how many adverse childhood events they had experienced. The study scored 10 adverse events, including witnessing abuse, 
experiencing abuse, neglect, household substance abuse, and imprisonment of a household member. The study followed the volunteers over many years, and they found that the greater number of ACEs a person experiences in their lifetime, the more likely they are to have developmental, physical, and mental health conditions. Other studies have shown that adverse events in childhood can lead to a rewiring of the brain's circuits, creating a state of chronic stress in which it becomes hard for the brain to go back to a non-stressed state. So if women are more likely to be abused, and the abuse has long-term effects on mental health and how the brain manages society and stress, and society is set up so that women are at a disadvantage in terms of wages, access to health care, and just accessibility of health care if they are caring for other people. It's no wonder that women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety. Because not only is their brain wired so that they respond more to anxiety or just their amygdala is more reactive, they are also experiencing more things in their lives that can create anxiety as well. So as I, am, as I just mentioned, long-term abuse, long-term trauma can impact your brain in ways that it makes it hard to get back to a non-stressed state. So it's reacting as if there are traumatic things happening all the time. Everything feels like a threat, even daily experiences. So and if, you're, if you're feeling stressed, feeling under threat all the time, you're very, very likely to be anxious a lot of the time. So some of the neurobiology of anxiety, and I am not a neuroscientist, so this is going to be dumbed down for those of you that, that maybe know a little bit more, but maybe some of you don't. Um, when we're anxious, our fight, flight, freeze response has been activated. Our brainstem integrates the anxious stimuli and it decides if we're going to fight, flee, or freeze. And when it is activated, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. Dr. Dan Siegel uses a hand model of the brain. So if you make a fist with your hand, tucking your thumb under your fingers, just imagine that your forearm and your wrist are the spinal column. The fleshy part of your hand, of your palm, is the brain stem, connecting the brain and the spinal column, where all the nerve impulses from the rest of your body enter the brain. The back of your hand is like the back of your head, where the brain is at the back of your head. And your fingers are the front of your head, and they are the cerebral cortex. And the tips of your fingers and fingernails are the prefrontal cortex. Your thumb is your midbrain and the limbic regions, the amygdala and the hippocampus, 
where memories and emotions are stored, and where the fight-flight-freeze response gets activated. In his book, Mindsight, Dan Siegel describes that the middle of the prefrontal cortex coordinates many of the important functions of the brain, like body regulation, attunement to others, our emotional balance, our flexibility in responses, soothing our fears, feeling empathy, our insight, our moral awareness, and our intuition. When we feel anxious, the emotional or reptilian brain gets activated and it overwhelms our system, causing us to flip our lid. So you lift your fingers up. And at that point, the emotional part of the brain and the rational part of the brain stop communicating and we're in the fight, flight, freeze response. In those anxious moments, the part of our brains that can help us regulate our body, soothe our fears, help us feel more flexible in our responses and feel emotionally balanced is no longer communicating with the emotional brain, so it's hard to do anything other than be anxious. This is a very simple explanation of a very complex process, and you can learn more about your brain functions in Dan, Siegel book, in Dan Siegel's book, Mindsight. The good news is that with intentional work, we can bring the rational part of our brain back online. The parasympathetic nervous system gets, can get activated so that we can feel calm, relaxed, and at ease when that's at work. Intentionally helping your body engage the parasympathetic nervous system through deep breaths, relaxation techniques, vis visualization, vagus nerve stimulation, mindful meditation, and grounding exercises all help us come back from that heightened alert state when we're in the fight-flight-freeze response. And this is where mindfulness comes in. Neural pathways are created when we get anxious, fearful, or stressed about work, life, and things that occur again and again. So if, as a child, there, was, there were many adverse events that occurred, you learn to live in a very highly anxious state, and actually your brain gets wired to be in that anxious state. Neurons are wired to react when it's stimulated when they're stimulated by similar experiences. So we tend to get stuck in familiar patterns of behaviors and responses. The amazing thing is, through mindfulness, we can create new neural pathways. And that's called neuroplasticity. So the saying goes, neurons that wire together 
that fire together, wire together. So if we're constantly being activated and stimulated by anxious, threatening, fear-provoking experiences in our lifetime, those, those neural pathways get wired together. So when we have new experiences, that can lead to the production of proteins creating new connections between the neurons. And that's neuroplasticity. And the more we reinforce those new connections, just like drawing a line in the sand or walking on a path through the grass multiple times, that path becomes more well-worn, more ingrained, and can subvert some of those old pathways of getting anxious instantly around things that maybe we don't need to feel anxious about anymore. With every new experience, we're connecting new neurons together throughout our lifespan. Pretty darn amazing. Dan Siegel notes that focused attention, aerobic exercise, novelty, and emotional arousal can all promote neuroplasticity. So how does mindfulness fit into this? Well, mindfulness encourages focused attention, and it also helps to regulate emotional arousal. John Kabat-Zinn describes mindfulness as the awareness that comes from paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. And a mindfulness practice incorporates both mindful awareness, so becoming more aware of our present moment experiences, as well as meditation. So because of that, the mindfulness practice helps to create new neural pathways. As we meditate, our thoughts come and go. And if we can allow ourselves to notice the thoughts without the reactivity and judgments, we're teaching our brains to be with all of our experiences, all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, being with them instead of reacting to them. And as we focus our attention on the here and now, and we acknowledge without judgment some of the automatic thoughts, perceptions, and interpretations that arise when we feel triggered, and we bring curiosity and an open, our, and an open awareness, we begin to see other possibilities. And as we react differently to those judgments and feelings and experiences, we create those neural pathways again. So we're not automatically reacting without awareness, but we're responding with intention and an emotionally regulated state. In some of the research on mindfulness and our mood, Stephen Hoffman and Associates found in their meta-analysis 
on the effect of mindfulness-based therapy on anxiety and depression, that there was a significant reduction in anxious symptoms in anxious symptoms when participants practiced mindfulness. In another study by Daphne Davis and Jeffrey Hughes, they found that the non-judgmental component characteristic of mindfulness, which they described as the ability to refrain from judging one's own cognitions, emotions, and bodily sensations, predicted lower levels of depression, anxiety, and stress. And this helped participants of the study to not judge their thoughts, their emotions, and their bodily sensations throughout the day. So why is mindfulness so great? Well, mindfulness isn't just great for women, it's good for everyone. And it's really good for therapists too. It can be helpful for you and all of your clients, but it's particularly helpful for women who struggle with anxiety. There are some contraindications for mindfulness with clients, and I will discuss those uh, a little bit later in this presentation. There are studies that show that there are certain characteristics that, um, or factors or symptoms of anxiety that women uh, experience that make mindfulness particularly helpful. And I'm going to go through some of that research here. In a 2009 meta-analysis on anxiety in men and women, McKenna and Anderson found that negative affect is more predominant in anxious women versus anxious men, and that trait anxiety, worrying about stress, is also more frequent for women. The same meta-analysis showed that women were also experiencing a greater fear of the physical consequences of anxiety as compared to men and had greater anxiety sensitivity, which is anxiety about being anxious. They discovered also that women were more likely to overestimate the possibility of danger, to expect harm, and to believe they wouldn't be able to cope when there was a dangerous situation compared to men. And this might be why women are more likely to report less self-efficacy than men, just in general. In self-reports, it was also shown that women were more likely than men to be worriers, and worry is a large component of anxiety hence the name for my podcast, Woman Warriors. McKenna and Anderson discussed that rumination is also another factor in anxiety and that women ruminated more often than men. The meta-analysis found that rumination led women to believe that the negative emotions and negative events are difficult to control. This lack of agency in their negative thoughts and the events increased their anxiety. In another study by Barami and Yousefi, published in 2011, they found that girls worried more 
about worrying than boys. They also found that girls were more likely than boys to feel that the worrying was uncontrollable and they often used avoidance to try to stop the worry. Another study by Calkins et al. published in 2009 showed that women with generalized anxiety disorder who responded to anxiety fearfully, which is the anxiety sensitivity, were at a greater risk of an onset or recurrence of other anxiety disorders. Mindfulness works because it helps women bring a non-judgmental awareness to how their thoughts and feelings impact their emotional state. Mindfulness is also helpful because the practice guides women to let their thoughts come and go, and this can reduce rumination. Practicing mindful awareness to calm the nervous system helps your female clients recognize that worry is just one of the feelings that we experience and that the worries can come and go just like all our other feelings. So it feels much less uncontrollable. Mindfulness can also help to release the over-identification with and active avoidance of anxious or worried thoughts. When we over-identify with our emotional state, we tend to describe ourselves as anxious, I'm anxious, or I'm stressed, or I'm overwhelmed, as if that's who we are versus that's how we're feeling. With mindfulness, clients can learn that they are anxious or stressed or worrying in the moment, but it will pass, and that it's a feeling not a part of our identity. And if we know that the uncomfortable feelings will come and go, it's much easier to stay present with them instead of pushing them away and avoiding them. Mindfulness also helps increase our tolerance for difficult feelings and uncomfortable physical symptoms related to anxiety. Through staying present with whatever that feeling is without judgment, it allows our body to tolerate that discomfort more consistently. Mindfulness is also about bringing a non-judgmental awareness to the present moment. So instead of attaching negative values to the worries, like I shouldn't feel anxious or what's wrong with me for worrying so much, the practice helps women accept and allow that the feeling and allow the feeling to be there without trying to avoid it. So how do we incorporate mindfulness into sessions? One way that I have found particularly helpful with clients is because anxiety typically presents with a lot of physical symptoms, it's helpful for the clients to understand the symptoms, but also to be aware that they're part of the anxiety and there isn't something physically wrong with them. So part of the process is psychoeducation around anxiety, how it impacts the body, how it impacts your biological state and your emotional state. 
The other part of it is just allowing the clients to identify where the stress is, where the anxiety is in their bodies. So in session, if the client is talking about anxiety, an anxiety-provoking event, ask them to pause and tune into their bodies. Suggest that they place a hand on where the anxiety feels most present or felt present in, in that time when they're, they were anxious. You can then have them breathe into that place and ask if they can get a sense of the size and shape of the anxiety in the body. And if they're able to do that, then have them try to visualize a softening of the feeling around the edges. So if they're describing, there's this lump in my chest, it feels like it goes up to my throat and down to my belly, ask them to just visualize what it looks like. And then imagine just the edges are softening as they breathe into that space. They can do this for a minute or two, and then you can ask them to tune in again and see how the anxiety feels now that they've softened the edges. And if a client can't do this in the moment, if they can't access that space or visualize what the anxiety might look like in their body or how it feels, where it extends, how big it is, Just ask them to sit and breathe with a hand placed on where they feel the anxiety, just breathing into that place for a moment or two. And then ask them to reflect back on how they're feeling. Another way to bring mindfulness into the sessions is for you to get curious with a non-judgmental attitude. Again, if the client is discussing an anxiety-provoking thing or anxious feelings or them feeling stressed out, ask them if they could describe the anxiety. One, where do they notice it? Is it hot or cold? Burning or tingling? Is there tension? If it had a color or texture, what might that be? You can even have them use uh, colored pencils or markers and paper and using a line, shape, and form, draw a picture of what the anxiety feels like. And after exploring all the properties of the anxiety, ask them how they're feeling in this moment. And maybe the anxiety is still there but ask them if they can just be with it for that moment, noticing all the different parts of the anxiety. And you can even ask if the anxiety wants them to know something. With this activity, you're modeling for the client a non-judgmental, curious attention with their anxiety. You're also demonstrating how to be with the anxiety instead of avoiding it. Guided imagery is another um, wonderful way to bring mindfulness into 
the session. If the client is feeling particularly distressed, if things have happened where they're just feeling incredibly anxious or stressed, or life events are feeling like they're out of control, you can guide them in a visualization of a place that feels calm and relaxed. Ask them to imagine a place where they feel safe. Have them look around and notice all the objects, living things, scenery, the layout of wherever they are, noticing the colors, the textures, the smells, sounds, and tastes of that place. Have them tune into their body and notice what the body feels like in that place. Have them spend time in that place exploring all the sensory stimuli for a few minutes, feeling the safety, calming influence the safe space has for them. When you're ready, slowly bring them back to the therapy room and reinforce for them that that place is always available to them inside them and that it is a place that they can bring up in moments of distress. This helps clients feel a sense of agency, a sense of control, a sense of their own power in managing their emotions, their anxiety, their stress in the moment. It also helps them recognize that the anxiety might not be as uncontrollable as they thought it was. If they're able to create the sense of peace and calm within themselves in the therapy room, that maybe the anxiety is not as out of control as they thought it was. Grounding skills are another wonderful way to help a client feel more present in the moment. I really like the, the grounding skill called 54321, where you instruct the client to notice five things they can see, four things they can hear, three things they can touch, two things they can smell, and one thing they can taste to bring them back to the present moment when they're feeling overwhelmed, distressed, or incredibly anxious, especially if they notice that they're ruminating. So when they recognize that they're stuck in their head, thinking, overthinking, rethinking past and future events, ask them to bring a mindful awareness of where they are in that moment, and then bring in this 54321 strategy to help them come back from the rumination out of their heads into their bodies, into their sensory stimuli so that they can feel more present here in the moment. Again, this brings some agency, this sense of control. It also allows them to recognize that they can step away from the rumination. They don't have to stay in that place stuck in their heads. That if they come back to this present moment, you can't be in the present moment and ruminating at the same time. Meditation is also a, a particularly, you know, is a part of the, the mindfulness practice 
that can help them learn how to feel more regulated daily and in a more scheduled way. So bringing that and can create the new neural pathways as we're sitting with our distress and consciously turning our attention to the breath and the present moment, we are creating those new neural pathways to help the brain and body feel more calm, feel more grounded in the present moment when we are distressed. So I'm going to guide you through a quick breath awareness meditation. This can be done at the beginning or end of a session or at any time during the session when you feel like it might help the client feel more relaxed, grounded, present. So sit upright in your chair or on the floor. If you're in a chair, feet flat on the floor, hands in your lap in a comfortable position, sitting upright yet not rigid. And if it feels comfortable to you, close your eyes. If you'd prefer, you can gaze softly at the floor or at something in front of you. And I want you to take three slow, deep breaths. So slowly inhale. Exhaling out. Another slow inhale, exhaling out slowly. Again, breathing in and exhaling. And now let your breath come back to its natural rhythm. And keeping your focus on your breath, wherever you feel it most noticeably. It might be the tip of your nose as the air enters your, your nostrils. Or the cool air at the back of your throat. It might be your chest rising and falling as you inhale and exhale. It might be your belly expanding and contracting with each breath. Just take a moment. You can even place your hand on your chest or your belly if you're having trouble identifying where you feel your breath. And take a moment and just notice the breath entering and exiting the body. And you might notice that 
as you're paying attention to your breath, your mind wanders. Shifting off into the plans or worries, future things to do. And that's okay. That's normal. Our minds are always thinking, planning, worrying, strategizing. But when you notice, just bring your attention back to the breath. And as you're meditating, you might have a sense of you're not doing this right or my mind's wandering too much. And try to bring a non-judgmental attitude toward your mind wandering or not feeling comfortable. Just noticing that's the feeling and bringing your attention back to your breath. And if you notice sensations in your body, maybe you're hungry and your stomach is growling, or maybe you're still feeling a little tightness in your chest, that's okay. Just notice that. Allow it to be there. And bring your attention back to your breath. Inhaling and exhaling. In and out. And now slowly begin to wiggle your toes, moving your fingers and your hands. If your eyes were closed, you can open them now, bringing your awareness back to the room. If your eyes were already open, you can sharpen your focus, looking about the room, noticing where you are, moving gently, And as you enter back into the space, just know that you can bring this feeling back by taking a few moments, a few slow, deep breaths, even closing your eyes for a moment or two, anytime throughout the day. So those are a few techniques that you can bring into the session at any time. But again, It takes some practice knowing when the client is ready for this and asking if the client would be okay with doing a meditation or a visualization or tuning into their body. And if they're not in that place where they are comfortable doing that, that's okay. And we have to allow the clients to know that it's up to them to say yes or no to give them some agency about how the session is going. As I mentioned before, there are some contraindications for mindfulness and things to be aware of when bringing mindfulness into your therapy sessions. 
it's important to be aware that trauma survivors are often stuck in past traumatic events if they haven't integrated the trauma. So mindfulness can be very helpful, but it's important to have some trauma training when working with these clients. And because one in four women have experienced some form of abuse in their lives, chances are a good portion of your female clients may have experienced some abuse and may have post-traumatic stress disorder or just some trauma responses from that experience. And if a client is stuck in traumatic memories and has not integrated the trauma and we suggest that they practice mindfulness, it could be that they will be reliving the trauma again and again if they close their eyes and these memories keep popping up and flashing and they're feeling the symptoms in in their body of fight, flight, freeze, powerlessness, whatever it might be. So this could make the post-traumatic symptoms worse. According to David Trelevin, who wrote the book Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, the three areas where mindfulness is most helpful for trauma survivors are attention regulation, body awareness, and emotional regulation. And I would say that's probably true for everyone, not just trauma survivors, but particularly for trauma survivors. The client needs to be in a place where they can be present with their physiological and psychological memories. A trauma-trained therapist can help the client get to that place where they can explore the trauma and move through it, integrate it into their body, into themselves in a way that it's no longer causing the post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. They can integrate the trauma so that they are able to manage the feelings in the moment. Psychoeducation, interpersonal connection, and trauma-sensitive work is required to help the client integrate the trauma before they begin a mindfulness practice. So it's very important for the clinician and the client to bring a non-judgmental attention doing mindfulness exercises. There's often a lot of lingering shame and guilt for trauma survivors. So reminding them to notice any feelings that come up without judgment. And as clinicians, we know if ever an intervention begins to feel uncomfortable, especially if you're doing a meditation with a client and they are showing signs that they're feeling unsafe or agitated, allow the client and remind the client if they're doing this at home, that they can pause, open their eyes and move about the room or do whatever it is they need to do to stay in that present moment to bring them out of that traumatic memory.
So to wrap this all up, in summation, with one in three women experiencing anxiety, my guess is you're working with a few anxious women. The combination of societal, biological, and traumatic factors impact women every day. They worry about worry. They ruminate more often than men, leading them to greater negative affect and feeling as if they have no control over the ruminations. They worry about the physical effects of anxiety and they worry about stress. Because so much of the worry and anxiety leaves women stuck in their heads with all the worrying thoughts, their limbic system can get, can get stuck in the fight-flight response. It's constantly being activated. This is where a mindfulness practice can help. Meditation and present moment awareness brings them out of their heads and into the present moment. Mindfulness helps women feel more empowered to manage their stress, and it can create new neural pathways to help them feel calmer when stressful events happen. Therapy with, a, with mindfulness. Therapy with mindfulness not only helps your female clients feel better, it can also impact their overall well-being because anxiety disorders impact women emotionally, physically, and financially. The 2011 study done by McLean and colleagues stresses that because of the prevalence and the course of duration, anxiety disorders are a significant source of disability for women. Women with anxiety reported more missed work days than men and were frequently seeking medical attention as compared to women without an anxiety disorder and more than half of the cost of the medical care was non-mental health-related expenses. Since women are much more likely to have anxiety, they're bearing most of the burden of this increased cost of medical care. So I hope that uh, this presentation was helpful for all of you therapists out there who are hoping to bring more mindfulness into your sessions and for those of you that work with either adult or teenage women who struggle with anxiety, I've found that these techniques can be incredibly powerful, incredibly helpful for my clients. And I can also speak from personal experience that mindfulness has changed my relationship with my anxiety over the years. I have struggled throughout my life, which I think I mentioned at the beginning, if I didn't, uh, I have struggled with anxiety. So I know what it's like. I know how hard it can be. And having a mindfulness practice, meditating, I don't meditate every day, but I try to. And giving myself the compassion that I need in the moments when I'm struggling has just shifted my whole attitude, my feelings about being anxious, has helped me manage my anxiety in an incredibly significant way, significant and meaningful. 
because not only does my mindfulness practice help me manage the anxiety, it has also helped me better understand myself, better understand my triggers, better understand when I need to take care of myself when I recognize the anxiety is bubbling up. But there are some clients that don't like to meditate, that they find it too difficult to sit quietly. They may find it difficult to sit with themselves or their body sensations or sit with their eyes closed. And there are some clients that really don't understand that a guided meditation is also just as good as sitting quietly without being guided. So psychoeducation around that is important too. But if a client is highly resistant to the meditation piece, mindful awareness in daily life can be a good start for them. So just having them take a moment or two and become fully aware of the activity, all the sensory stimulus stimuli in that moment, whether they're washing the dishes taking a walk, in the shower. There's always ways to bring a mindful awareness to very mundane, everyday activities. And again, just like with meditation, if their mind wanders, they just bring it back to the sensory stimuli that they're experiencing in that moment. So for example, if they're washing the dishes, they can smell the soap. They can look at the iridescence of the bubbles. They can feel the temperature of the water. Is it cool or hot? Can they hear the sound of the water as it hits the plate? And each time their mind wanders to thinking about what's next, they can bring their attention back to whatever activity they're doing and bring their mindful awareness into their lives in that way, in that way, instead of meditating for the time being. And maybe at some point they will come back to it, but maybe not. And that's okay too. And I allow that that is up to them. That is their choice, that they can use the techniques that work for them. And when they're ready, if they are at some point, they can bring meditation into it as well. So I hope that um, there's some awareness here that you can be creative, that you as a therapist can be creative and the clients can be very creative in how they bring mindfulness into their lives. They can make it a very personalized experience that feels okay and comfortable for them. So I hope that you will work to incorporate some of these techniques, remembering that if your clients have had a traumatic experience, that it's important to assess where they are. If you are not a trauma-trained therapist, it would be important to refer them out to someone who can handle the trauma piece before they begin the mindful awareness and mindfulness practice. And as always, with any uh, technique or new thing we bring into our therapy practice, it's important to know how it impacts us. So I would encourage you to bring mindfulness into your life and experience it so that you can also talk to clients about what that's like with conviction and honesty and genuineness. 
You can find out more about me and my podcast at progressioncounseling.com or womanwarriors.com. You can also find me on social media. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, either at Elizabeth Cush or at Woman Warriors. I hope you'll connect with me there. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.